So, other uh, adversaries. Yes. Thank you. Well, it's good to see all of you, particularly see your interest in studying the Word of God on uh, early on Sunday morning. Um, I'd like to talk to you in the remaining time about salvation this morning, and I'd like, if you would, if you have your Bibles, and you'd better have your Bibles, um, Turn, please, to um, the book of Ephesians. That's one of Paul's epistles. Uh, Ephesus was a city in what is today uh, far western Turkey. Sometimes in the ancient world it was called Asia Minor, but it's not Asia as we know it today. It was western Turkey. So he wrote to this, the people of God, this church, and we're going to address a couple of things he said and to talk about the issue of salvation, perhaps in a way that you don't often hear today. You would hear it more in this church because of your pastor's knowledge and faithfulness, but not so much even among conservative Christians. Of course, salvation is one of the most important themes of the Bible. In fact, if you get rid of salvation, you couldn't have a Bible. Um, So the Christian worldview, we've talked about this before when I was here, is creation, fall, redemption. God created the entire universe, very good, but Adam and Eve sinned, and this sin provoked God's judgment. But in the kindness of his heart, God promised a redeemer, Jesus Christ, who came and paid the penalty for man's sin. But he would pay for more than the penalty for our sins. Our Lord would also and gradually redeem and restore and enhance the entire fallen world. Now, this is redemption, and redemption is at the heart of salvation. Now, unfortunately, many people see only one dimension of salvation. But if we read the Bible carefully, we'll find that this is much too narrow. In fact, there are three main dimensions of salvation in the Bible. Therefore, my topic this morning is 3D salvation. Have you ever seen any 3D movies? You go to the theater and you get these special little glasses. Sometimes you're watching a football game and the announcers, oh, I hear there's a football game today, right? Isn't there a Texas team playing, as I understand it? (laughs) The announcers will say, well, the problem with this offense is it's too one-dimensional. Have you ever heard that? They can only run the ball, they can't pass. Or they only pass the ball, they can't run. And therefore, it's kind of a, not a very effective offense. Well, sadly, many Christians are that way when it comes to salvation. They only see one aspect of salvation. Well, when you leave today, I hope that you have a fuller and more robust view of salvation and uh, understand the Bible teaches that salvation is very broad. Now, I could show this to you in many places in the Bible, but we're going to stay basically in the book of Ephesians. And uh, though I'll refer to a couple of others. So let's start with Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, if you have your Bible. 
verses 8 through 10. And this, these are texts that many of you um, believers have, have memorized. And if you haven't, I would recommend that you do memorize this. For by grace you've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, actually that also could be masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I want you to notice several key points about salvation here. First, salvation is by grace. We don't have to spend a long time on that. Now, the term grace in the Bible just means gift, charis, gift. It's not a special theological term designed just for the Bible. It's just a very common term that people would have used even apart from understanding the Bible. Of course, in the Bible, grace does have sort of a specialized meaning, but that meaning isn't hard to understand. In this context, it means that salvation is a gift. Therefore, salvation can't be earned. If I give you a gift, I'm implicitly saying that's something you didn't deserve. Now, your employer doesn't hand you your biweekly paycheck and say, here's a little gift for you. (laughs) No, that's something that you earn. It's a reward, not a gift. So that's why Paul declares salvation can't be of works. If salvation could be by works, you could boast. Paul says that. You could boast. Now, if you, for instance, say, oh, I work, uh, or worked 80 hours a week this past year to provide extra things for my family, uh, that could be very commendable if you said that. In fact, a commendable boast, in and of itself, not necessarily a sin. Uh, but that's not a gift. You can't boast about a gift. Because the gift isn't given as a reward or for merit, Because of that, our only response is gratitude, gratitude. Well, God's plan of salvation is all a gift. Once man fell into sin, he placed himself in an impossible situation. He couldn't save himself. By the way, this is why moralistic sinners are so wrong when they say, well, if I'm good enough, I think I can expect to get to heaven. If I'm not too bad, I can expect to get to heaven. Well, the problem is this. You can't be that good. God requires entire sinless obedience. And if you want to know what that looks like, look at the life of Jesus Christ. Look at the life of Jesus Christ. You have to be as holy as he is. And it would be blasphemous for anybody to say that he or she could live a life as holy as Jesus Christ's. But if you don't, you can't earn eternal life. You actually couldn't earn eternal life anyway because it's not something that could be earned. It's a gift, the Bible says. A gift of God. God himself wants to get all the glory for salvation. Our entire lives, every aspect of our salvation must be given to glorifying God. And one of the greatest aspects of the glory he can get is for our salvation. He gave us his son, who shed his blood on the cross and rose again. This is the gift of eternal life, and therefore there can be no boasting, none whatsoever. Now then note what Paul says. He tells us how we receive the gift. Well, if we can't earn it, how can we get it? 
This gift is received by faith. Just as grace is pretty easy to understand, so faith is fairly easy to understand. Faith is, in the Bible, wholehearted, submissive trust. Now, this is very important, folks. It's not merely intellectual assent. It doesn't mean we simply believe that Jesus is the Son of God, for example. Now, James tells us the devils believe and quake. Did you know that? The devils believe. James says that very plainly. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe God exists. They understand that. But that's not salvation faith. Faith in the Bible means casting ourselves entirely on what God has said and trusting in him and his promises and his son. We're saved when we recognize that we're a sinner. When we admit we deserve God's judgment. When we trust Christ as the only way of salvation. And then, and here's the distinctive point, we cast ourselves, we throw ourselves in full confidence in him. Now, there's a striking story that explains this. I hope you'll remember this. It's a very memorable story, true story. Uh, In the 19th century, there was a French rope walker whose name was Charles Blondin. Several times, he scaled Niagara Falls. There'd be a rope over Niagara Falls, and he would walk. Obviously, a thin little guy. (laughs) He would walk on a rope across Niagara Falls. Not just Niagara Falls, by the way. Uh, various other places. Well, once, after he walked over from one side to the other, there was an enthusiastic supporter who dashed up to him, and he said, oh, on the way back over, you see, he walked over, and he was going to walk back. Would have scared me just to walk over one time. I would have made it. He says, on the way back, can you do it pushing a wheelbarrow? I know you can do it. I just know you can do it, he said. And we do have accounts of this. This is basically the, the story. This is what happened. Well, Blondine looked at him and paused for a minute, and he said, okay, if you believe that, get in the wheelbarrow. He didn't. You see, he had intellectual confidence. Oh, I believe you can do that, but I'm not quite sure you can do that for me. Well, biblical salvation isn't just that we believe Jesus came to save and can save, but we believe that he will save me, and we commit our souls and our entire lives to him. We cast ourselves to him. Now, Paul says something else here. It's very important. He says we're saved for good works. Did you notice that? We're saved for good works. In other words, one of the main reasons God saved us is so that we would live godly lives. Now, the Bible says this in many, many places. And this is just as important as the truth, truth that we are not saved by good works. Both of them are important. Now, there are several theological phrases that will help us understand this relationship. I'll give you three of them. You might want to write these down or at least remember them. Um, first, we're not saved by good works, but we're not saved apart from good works. Okay? We're not saved by good works, but we're not saved apart from good works. Here's another one. No one will gain eternal life because of good works. 
Yet no one will enjoy eternal life without good works. Here's a final one. The Puritans were sort of fond of saying this or something like this. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. Now, the great reformer John Calvin put it this way. When we trust in Christ by faith, we're united to him. We're joined to him. Now, Calvin taught rightly that this is the most important truth about individual subjective soteriology. Okay, I just introduced a word there. Anybody here? No, what does the word soteriology mean? It's not hard to understand. What is soteriology? Doctrine of salvation, the study of our salvation. Okay. Um, union with Christ is the most important thing because it includes everything else. Every, do you understand that in Jesus Christ we have everything we need? We have uh, forgiveness. We have redemption. We have justification. We have reconciliation. We have adoption and on and on. But this also includes sanctification. Sanctification means being set apart for a life of obedience, set apart for the Lord. In other words, when we're united to Christ by faith, we aren't just justified, we aren't just declared righteous, we're also sanctified. And get this, those whom God has not sanctified, he has not justified. Now let me probe this just real quickly a little deeper before we go to the next point. If we say we're a Christian and we don't live lives marked by obedience, we are lying. The Holy Spirit lives within true believers and he leads us into a life of obedience. That doesn't mean a life of sinless perfection. The Bible doesn't teach that before the Lord comes or before we meet the Lord, we can live a life without sinning at all. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. None of us can be completely without sin until we put off our uh, sinful humanity and put on the new resurrected body. But, 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 if we're believers, our lives are marked by obedience. By the way, that's one of the main reasons God saves us, to create obedient people. So let's review what Paul says about individual soteriology. Salvation is a gift. We can't earn it. We can only appropriate it by faith, trusting what God has said Uh, In Jesus Christ, getting in the wheelbarrow. Getting in the wheelbarrow of salvation and allowing our great Savior and King to push us all the way to the final resurrection. And we're saved precisely to perform good works. God saved us so we would live holy lives separate from our previous life. That is the life of dominion in sin. All right, so second point of the three. And this is really important. But personal salvation isn't the only dimension of salvation we see in the Bible or Ephesians. In fact, it might not even be the most important one. So let's keep reading in Ephesians 2. Maybe you have your Bible still open there, Ephesians 2. Or you have your iPhone and you're reading on your iPhone. Notice now Ephesians 2 verses 11 through 13. Notice how fascinating. Therefore... (coughs) Excuse me. Therefore, Paul says, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision 
by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. That is, sort of the, the Jews, who are God's covenant people, kind of poke fun at, perhaps. The Gentiles, oh, you're not a part of the covenant people of God. That's what Paul's saying. At that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then, go on, um, same point, verse 19. If you have it there, we'll just read this verse. It has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, it's important to understand a little of the historical background. What in the world is Paul doing talking about Jews and Gentiles? What does that have to do with salvation? I thought salvation was about me trusting in Christ and going to heaven when I die. Why is he bringing up all this stuff of Jews and Gentiles? Well, if we don't understand this, we'll read Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 about salvation by grace through faith and assume that it's individual soteriology, my own personal salvation, that's the only thing Paul is concerned about. But that isn't true. Listen to this in chapter 2, verse 16, Ephesians two sixteen. You might see it right there. He reconciled them both, Jews and Gentiles, to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity, hostility, between Jews and Gentiles. Now, if you think about it, that's a pretty extraordinary statement. Paul is saying that one of the chief reasons Jesus Christ died is to bring the Gentiles into God's covenant plan. You understand that? On the same footing as the Jews. In fact, he says that in chapter 2, verse 12, which we won't read. Now, remember that after the Tower of Babel, God called out the pagan Abraham, and he gave him great promises about his physical seed. God would be a special God to them. We call them the Jews. They'd be his treasured people. He'd give them a land. What was that land called? Canaan? Mm-hmm. And uh, though this was a promise to Abraham and his lineal descendants, his physical seed, almost from the beginning, it was clear this promise was bigger than to his physical seed. For example, Abraham's son Ishmael, by his wife Sarah's handmaiden, was excluded from the covenant. Later, God excluded Esau, Isaac's son. On the other hand, if those outside Israel, called Gentiles, were willing to join Israel, come knocking, as it were, on Moses or Joshua's tent door, submit themselves to the covenant, they could do that. They could become a part of the people of God. So the issue was never race, physical descendants as such, but rather a covenant relationship to God. By the way, folks, never forget that. The important thing is always your covenant relationship to God through Jesus Christ. That's what's important. In fact, from the very beginning, God told Abraham he would actually father many nations, not just the Jews. Why? Because the whole goal of selecting Israel was to start a seed plan that would one day engulf the entire earth. Now, one reason I'm bringing this up is not just because Ephesians is teaching it, but because there are a lot of false ideas about this. 
Pastor Ron and I were talking about this yesterday. It's important to understand the church in the New Covenant wasn't God's plan B. It was not God's plan B. The New Israel. By the way, would you like to know who the New Israel is? It's us. We're the New Israel. Both ethnic Jews and Gentiles belonging to Christ. That was God's plan all along. This is why so many of the unbelieving Jews during Jesus' time misunderstood Jesus' parables. They bragged, they thought since the Jews were God's specially chosen people, that they were God's final salvation objective. God's not going to do anything else. We're his chosen people. We're the Jews. This is the end of everything. It wasn't. Then they were never intended to be. From the beginning, God wanted to do something bigger than with Israel. Israel was the pilot project, pilot beginning project. Now, this puts us, um, brings up another very important point. When Jesus died on the cross, he put an end to ethnic Israel as a covenant body. Now, I know if a lot of people heard that, they would just be falling off their chair. But the Bible's, but that's what the Bible teaches. Old covenant Israel as a covenant body, has served its purpose. It served its purpose, and it was a good purpose. But it's over. And from then on, the physical Jews are covenanted to God only through the Messiah, Jesus Christ, you see. This means God has no future distinctive plan for Israel as a nation. Now, according to Romans 11, many Jews will be saved one day. That's a glorious promise but only as a part of the covenant people of God, the true Israel in Jesus Christ. Now, some Christians believe that God has one special plan going on with the nation of Israel today. Then he's got this like separate plan going on with the church of Jesus Christ. That is a false theology, and I would say also very dangerous theology. There's only one way to get to God, and that is by Jesus Christ. And ethnic Jews get to God that way like everybody else does. You bet. Again and again, Jesus warned that one day Israel would be cut off. If they didn't repent, if they didn't repent, Paul said the same thing. That actually happened, by the way, in AD 70. It actually happened. With the destruction of Jerusalem. The temple, as most of you know that have studied this, was demolished. So there's no legitimate, legitimate ethnic Jewish religion today. You say, well, I mean, isn't Judaism today, isn't that like sort of like a, a skip? Thank you so much. Really appreciate that. Uh, isn't that really kind of Judaism, kind of like a, like a scaled-down version of Christianity? No. It's a false faith. If you have a wrong view of Jesus Christ, then everything else is wrong. The church is the true Israel, and it always was intended to be the true Israel. So, we, we true Jews, Christians, saved Jews and Gentiles, are the inheritors of the promises. The covenants are ours. We are God's people who take dominion in the earth, just as the Jews of the old covenant were to take dominion of the land of Canaan. Of course, they took dominion by the sword, while we take dominion by the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. But we are the true Israel. 
If somebody were to ask you, are you a Jew? Oh, yes, yes, I'm, I'm a Jew. The true Jew. The seed of Abraham. That's the most important Jew. Belonging to Jesus Christ. So, and here's the main point that I want to make and that Paul is making here. God isn't just saving individuals. He's saving entire peoples. Specifically, specifically the Gentiles. That's his point in Ephesians. That means those pagan nations outside Israel. The gospel is designed to go everywhere. And that's precisely what Jesus told the disciples in the Great Commission. What did he say there in Matthew chapter 28? Go therefore and preach the gospel to all the Jews and make sure that all of the Jews trust in me as their Messiah. Is that what he said? No, no, no. A thousand times no. Go everywhere preaching the word of God to all the nations, baptizing them. That is bringing them under visibly under the authority of Jesus Christ. Everywhere. That's vital to understand. And then um, third, and then we'll, I want to save time for some questions here. Then we come to the third dimension of salvation. So there is the personal dimension of salvation. That's the first thing. The second is the corporate dimension of salvation. Now this third one is the cosmic, cosmic, I'll explain that, dimension of salvation. It's probably the most important because it includes the other two. What does this mean? Well, let's let Paul tell us. So if you have your Bibles, look at Ephesians 1, verse 10, and then I'm going to skip from verse 10 to verses 20 through 23. Certainly remarkable verses. He's speaking, first in verse 10, Paul's writing that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one, he meaning the Father, might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. And then skipping, through to, skipping down to verse 20. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, you might be getting the picture here that this is a very big picture. You see, God isn't just saving us. In fact, he isn't just saving the Gentiles in addition to the Jews. He's saving the entire created universal cosmos, the entire order. Now, notice that when Jesus died and ascended to heaven, God placed him at his right hand. Did you notice that when we were reading that? God placed him at his, that is the Father's, right hand. What does that mean? Well, the right hand is the place of co-rulership, co-kingship. By the way, Daniel 7 teaches the same thing. You can read that in Daniel 7, where it speaks of the attention and the enthronement of Christ. Jesus Christ was resurrected, not just to save individuals, but to ascend and take his heavenly throne and to rule over the entire created cosmos. Jesus created it, and he was created to rule over it. Now, this is important to understand. We sometimes hear about the fact that Jesus is the mediator, the go-between mediator of redemption. And that's true, he is. 
There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 says that. By the way, not Mary or the saints. Jesus Christ is one mediator. He's the only one. There are no others. But here's the main point I want to make. Uh, there's also only one mediator between God and creation. And that is the eternal Son of God, you see. Now, this makes good theological sense. Now, remember that the Christian worldview is creation. What's the rest? Fall, redemption. Remember that. If somebody asks you, well, so what is the Christian faith all about? You can just say, well, if I only get to say three words, it's this. Creation, fall, redemption. That's what it's all about. Now, then you can say, I want to explain it to you. But if you can say only three words, that's what you need to say. Well, when man fell, of course, he provoked God's curse over all creation. Now, of course, non-human creation didn't sin. Trees don't sin. (laughs) Animals don't sin because they don't have that volition and choice. Man alone has volition and consent, and therefore he alone was judged. But since creation was made for man, it was implicated in man's sin. Therefore, if God's going to redeem man's fall, he has to redeem everything that was lost in the fall. This means the entire globe and the cosmos. Earlier I said this was the most important dimension of salvation. Now maybe you see why. Redemption and salvation includes everything. Paul begins, and we won't read this, but you can notice perhaps in chapter 1, right at the beginning, verse 3, He talks about the fact that we're ruling with Christ in the heavens right now, believers. The entire cosmos. Then he goes on to talk about our individual salvation, predestined Christ. Then he talks about the Gentiles, which we just talked about a couple minutes ago, included in God's plan. But all of this individual salvation, all of this corporate salvation, all of this is because salvation is a cosmic, universal, global Salvation. In other words, God is saving everything everywhere. Now, I want to say quickly, this is not the idea, the liberal idea of universalism. Who here knows what I mean by that? Pastor Ron, anybody know? What is universalism? It's a false doctrine. Yeah, universalism is the idea some liberals, well, God is so nice, you know, and so loving that he's in the end going to save everybody. Some of them actually believe the devil will one day be saved. Well, obviously, if you believe the Bible, that's utterly, utterly false. Um, By the way, if you have a problem with sinners in hell, you have a problem with Jesus. Jesus was the greatest hellfire brimstone preacher in all the Bible. Yeah, you need to understand that. But, but, that's not the point I'm wanting to make. Paul's point is that salvation extends everywhere, and extends not just to the human heart and individual lives, our families and churches. It's not just that when we die, we go to heaven, go to be with the Lord. These are great benefits. But in addition, Jesus Christ is saving the entire world. I don't mean every single individual will be saved. I mean God is redeeming everything, everywhere. Um, In fact, in Romans 8, Paul says the creation itself is groaning, waiting for his redemption. Now, 
think about this for a minute. Hope you children will listen to this because this is a beautiful thought. Did you know the mountains and the trees and the wolves and the whales and the oceans and the insects need to be redeemed? Did you know that? Might sound strange, but it's actually true. Yeah, they need to be redeemed. All of this, that, they, they must all be redeemed. Of course, they can't trust Christ for salvation. But nonetheless, they need to be brought back out of the curse. All of them have been afflicted by the curse, but Christ himself bore the curse on the cross. And one day that curse will be entirely lifted. This will happen in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, people sometimes say that when we die, uh, we go to heaven. Well, actually, the Bible says that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. And in eternity, we'll not be off floating in outer space somewhere, wearing halos and playing harps. No, Revelation 21 says God himself will descend in the new heavens and the new resurrected earth. Those who are resurrected to eternal life will live forever on that resurrected earth with God himself. Now think about that for a minute as I come to the end here. God himself will live with redeemed man on earth for eternity. That's what the Bible says. Read Revelation. John doesn't tell us that we go up to live with God in eternity. Oh, we're going to escape all this bad, bad physical world. It's just so bad, bad. I'm going to fly off. I'm going to fly away. No, it says that he comes down. God comes down to live with us for eternity. On this earth, of course, on this redeemed, purged, resurrected earth. Maybe some of you folks uh, that have lived here in the Rio Grande, Rio Grande Valley will be living right here in eternity. You say, well, yeah, I mean, right here. In your resurrected bodies. And a resurrected Rio Grande Valley. Yeah, it could very well be. It'll look much, much better then. Won't be any humidity. 95 degrees and 100% humidity in July. And right, no suffering, no pain, no death. But it will be all very physical. Because physical is a part of creation and God is saving creation. All of it. All of it. So then, in conclusion, these are, this is salvation, 3D. Three dimensions, 3D. Get your 3D glasses on. Personal salvation, corporate salvation, Jew and Gentile, the nations, and then cosmic salvation, everything else. Paul said that wherever sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But where has sin abounded? Everywhere in creation. Therefore, grace must abound everywhere in creation. So let's ask the Lord today to give us a greater understanding of how great our salvation is. Salvation in three dimensions. Okay, we've got about six minutes for questions. Any Q&A today? That was kind of a whirlwind trip. Kind of went through that quickly. Any questions? I 
said it was good, it was perfect. So when you look at everything, it is perfect. So to think that something can be better, it's, it's, it's not beautiful. It's going to be something that you can taste right now. And it's going to be a resort. Uh, but, uh, but again, to think that, no, this is, uh, everything was messed up, yes, by sin. But God, He supplies us. Uh, he had a plan for us. It will be the same for, for creation. So, um, uh, again, to, to think that, oh, it, this is all going bad, is, is not to look the world as God has created, good and perfect. And we can taste it right now. The beauty of, of what you see. Amen. That's some of the best theology that you're going to hear all week long. You understand what JP was saying? It's really vital. Creation was very good. Therefore, there was no defect in creation. Let me put it this way quickly before we get to another question. Salvation is not rescue from creation. You don't need to be rescued from creation. Creation is very good. Now, it is under a curse, but creation is inherently good. The trees are good. The animals are good. This created material order is good. In fact, it's not just good. God looked at it on the sixth day and he said it is very good. If I can say so, reverently, God said, you know what? I did a pretty good job here. <laughs> it's very good. You see that redemption is the restoration and enhancement of this physical creation, what God created. So salvation is not like rescuing God to take us away from creation. It's the restoration of this glorious order that is presently under sin. Excellent, sir. Uh, there was, yes, sir. Uh, right. you, know, uh, you hit on that at the very end of your uh, comments there. That I was going to say that it's extremely difficult to have that view of uh, 3D salvation without having a post-millennial eschatology. Oh, man, that's right. So if you believe salvation is in 3D, it's very hard to hold that view, Frank is right, consistently if you don't hold to post-millennialism. I won't go into the details. Post-millennialism is basically the idea that through the power of the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit of God, submission to the word of God, the law of God, that over time there will be great gospel victory and the kingdom of God will advance. Well, why is that? Well, if, if salvation, redemption, is about restoring creation, then it has to advance in time and history. Now, some people say, well, yes, that's going to happen, but that can't re- everything's going to get worse and worse, and it's going to happen after Jesus comes. Well, that's well-meaning, but the problem with that is you're really saying then that the gospel fails. <laughs> you know, you're really saying the gospel fails. Well, the gospel doesn't fail. You see, man sinned, he fell into sin, everything was then placed under a curse. Therefore, since, now think about this for a minute. Because Satan led man to sin and therefore invite God's curse, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will lead the redeemed man to overturn the curse. Of course, Christ himself centrally does that on the cross and resurrection. But he uses humanity. Those that fell, they're us, those that are the children of Adam and Eve, to turn back the curse. So, uh, yes, that is correct. You have to believe it's the most consistent way to understand this creation, fall, redemption is postmillennialism. Any others? Maybe one more. I have a question on. Oh, oh, wait, okay. oh there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, you mentioned 
in Revelation that heaven comes down to earth. Is that a picture of, I'm just assuming that's a picture of Jesus Christ coming down as a man, and now God's able to, like it says, tabernacle with man again. Is that, would you say that's the beginning of eternity or eternal life? Yeah, great question, Johnny. Um, I think when Revelation uh, chapter 21 talks about uh, the new heaven and the new earth and God descending, I think that's coincident with happening about the same time as what we call the second advent. See? So the great future events are Christ's parousia, the appearing, the second physical advent mentioned, of course, in the Acts chapter 1, God himself at the time coming down. Uh, now, which one happens precisely first? The Bible doesn't say, but as he's coming down, there will be a purging, a resurrection, a new heavens and a new earth. There will be the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Saved and unsaved will be resurrected. There will be the final judgment. Everybody understand about the final judgment? The Bible is very clear that believers will be judged, and because they have the righteousness of Christ, you and I, if we're trusting Christ, if we have his righteousness, we'll have eternal life. But what about unbelievers? They don't have the righteousness of Christ. They have to stand in their own righteousness, which means nothing. They'll be judged, sent off to judgment. And then we enter eternity. So yes, Johnny. Now, I, I, the Bible doesn't exactly say precisely which everything that comes first, but all of this happens basically at the same time. I do believe there in Revelation that when God is coming down, that's kind of coincident with Christ's second advent, Christ coming down. All right, it's 15 after. I'm told I have to stop. Let's close, uh, conclude with prayer. And uh, who would like to conclude with prayer? Johnny, you go for it. Lord God, we just lift you up. Father, you are the Alpha and the Omega, Lord. You are the beginning and the end. 